I just came across this. Uh, it's random tangent. My cousin is an assistant psych professor. Her new boss brought up how male students sometimes challenge female professors. He asked how she handles that. She says, hold on, let me take notes, grabs a pen and a paper and proceeds to take no notes. If he asks why, she says, tell me something I don't know and I'll have something to write. (laughs) No student has tried twice. Whoa. (laughs) Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be there. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. We should introduce our podcast. Hi, this is Good Witches, Bad Bitches. <laughs> oh, my God. My name is Deanna. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. (laughs) My name is Hannah. I am also one of the hosts of this podcast. And we talk about ladies. Yeah. Yeah. What their hair looks like. Pretty much only surface level. We don't want to know about anything other than what they look like and what they wear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much all we talk about. Yep. It's great. Obviously, that's a lie. (laughs) Yeah, we're, hopefully this is a, this is a feminist podcast <laughs> where we talk about women in history and today. Sometimes they're cool, sometimes they're scary. Sometimes it's scary how cool they are. Ooh. Oh, that was good. How? You're going to have to remember that one for um future episodes. No. No. Yeah, we're it's done. I can that remember what you read in high school, but I will not remember <laughs> yeah. that phrase. Oh my god. Oh, you're a weird one. Uh, Yeah, well, tell me about it. So, for context, we're recording the day after two mass shootings. Oh, boy. And I don't want to talk about, like, the the shootings specifically, but there's an article in The Atlantic that came out this morning with the headline, Ideology Kills, How Do You Police It? And it's fairly short, and I thought it just had some interesting points. Sure. That I thought might be relevant to talk about. I just feel like mainly the reason I looked it up is I I just it's current, but also, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just was curious about some of the the thoughts people are having about it right now. So we're all fucking tired. They we're all tired. We're all tired. We're past the point where like the fight even makes sense anymore. Like because we all nothing's know nothing's happening, right? And the NRA is so powerful. We all know it's purely money at this point. Yep. So, um, all right. So this is from The Atlantic. Um, The headline is, Ideology Kills, How Do You Police It? At least 20 people are dead in El Paso, Texas. And once again, some ghoul with a rifle has reignited the moronic inferno of online commentary that follows such events. Mm. Was this an act of terrorism? I mean, yes. Uh, If the gunman's alleged manifesto proves genuine, does that mean the so-called alt-right or online white nationalism uh, shares blame for this atrocity? Should zealots have access to deadly weapons? Is Donald Trump, recently seen on Twitter gloating about the burglary of a congressman's home in Baltimore, capable of a statesman-like response that acknowledges and repudiates his support from those who openly or tacitly celebrate the crime? No. Um, (laughs) Anything tactful or thoughtful from... uh, Right, exactly. Those two words 
can't even be close to Donald Trump without exploding into flames. (laughs) Well, so he says, if you are spending any time at all litigating the perfectly obvious answers to these questions, you should stop, drop, and roll because the flames are consuming you, and pretty soon nothing will be left but a pile of soot and a charred iPhone. Um, He also says, in parentheses, a second mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio, in the early hours of Sunday morning left at least nine dead. The motive there remains unclear, but um, has not restrained similar speculation. So a four-page statement appeared online moments before the shooting yesterday. Police are investigating whether, whether the gunman wrote it. It is, unlike the Christchurch New Zealand manifesto, straightforward and written in language comprehensible to normal people, (laughs) rather than in elusive, wink-laden online jargon. One benefit of that straightforwardness is that if police confirm the strongly suspected link between the gunman and the manifesto, no debate will be necessary about what motivated the killer or what fountains of ideas he drank from. Yeah. The author of the manifesto pronounced himself in, quote, general agreement with the Christchurch murderer. He opposed racial mixing. He thought America was committing suicide by letting Hispanics, quote, invade. He intended to kill, uh, to counter these trends, and he claimed to be ready to die in the act. He even endorsed, tactically, the targeting of innocent and unarmed people using the phrase low security targets. Wow. Imagine the type of subhuman consciousness that would refer to cowering children this way. But that that kind of phrasing is like all over alt-right forums online. Like that's how they talk about. You don't that the phrasing doesn't come out of a fucking vacuum. Like it doesn't just like appear oh, yeah, out no, of your no, brain. No. You know, like he's getting that from somewhere. Yeah. Um So let's get back to those fountains of ideas. The very few noteworthy sections of the manifesto are the ones that reveal a broader range of influences than one might suspect. The author reserves his greatest rage, not for people of Hispanic descent, but for the takeover of the United States by unchecked corporations. The corporations, he says, are pro-immigration and befoul our natural environment. What? Once automation spreads and causes mass unemployment, Hispanic invaders will demand government freebies, specifically a universal basic income, and will cause civil unrest if not placated. Why specifically is this problem only going to affect Hispanic (laughs) immigrants? Yeah. It's working class white Americans who get fucked over by this more than anyone else. So he he has an answer for that. Mm. Oddly enough, the author shares some of these goals, for white people anyway, quote, achieving ambitious social projects like universal health care and UBI, universal basic income, would become far more likely to succeed, which he wants, if tens of millions of dependents are removed. This is weird. The ideal, he suggests, would be automation without immigration so that the low-paying jobs would go to robots and non-immigrant Americans would get the good jobs. What? Many of these ideas, including some of the most stupid and craven ones, come not just from the right, as traditionally conceived, but from the left as well. The left has peddled conspiracies of corporations as diabolical puppeteers, while the right has credulously promoted corporations as angelic job creators. Yes. Um, Lack of confidence in job markets' ability to digest and repurpose displaced workers is typically a concern of the left. And, of course, the Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, has been the most vocal figure on the subject of job loss due to automation. income, yeah. 
So yeah, universal basic income and healthcare have been proposed by Swedish model Democrats and ridiculed by Republicans. Naturally. Naturally. The belief that poor immigrants would, if given the chance, fill our welfare roles and capsize the ship of the state. That's the position not only of Trump advisor Stephen Miller, but also of Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I'm sorry, but it, it, it has nothing to do with immigrants, because even before this rhetoric was being thrown at immigrants, you had the the mythologized bullshit uh, uh, character of the welfare queen, which was black Americans. Right. No. And so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, that now they're just saying, oh, it's an immigrant problem. But if it wasn't, then they would just turn it to someone else and be racist towards to, you know other Americans well and that's exactly why this the the person who wrote the article is talking about this like fountain of ideas like it's just the new the newest well yeah you know what I mean right. it's just the newest thing to the newest ideas that he's drinking from and sort of like compiling the ones that that then yeah and then they can sort of be rolled up in his ideology um so let's see He goes on, blah, blah, blah. What the diverse sources of the author's ideology show is that in political violence, as in so many other parts of modern life, inspiration comes from an ever more bizarre range of origins. Yeah. Portions of the manifesto read like an eco-terrorist rant from the 1980s. Others read like Timothy McVeigh. Actually, the Hispanic community was not my target, the manifesto says, until I read The Great Replacement, which was the Christchurch Shooters Manifesto. These conspiracies have been snatched from the buffet line of bad ideas and then served up as a form of fascism. Um, Yeah, he goes on. Let me just see. As we learn more about the perpetrator, we will doubtless discover that he said vile and alarming things online and off long before he started killing. In retrospect, all these statements will feel like tragic missed opportunities to straightjacket a young man and save both his life and the lives of at least 20 others. But keep in mind how commonplace, on a sentence-by-sentence level, portions of that manifesto are. Just how many straitjackets can our society afford? So, I mean, I don't know that, like, the whole article is so right, but I think think the ideas he's bringing up are really interesting. Sure. You know, this idea that uh, people like these shooters are taking ideas from everywhere. And they're, they're get, getting all these little sound bites, and then they're going, okay, well, that sounds good, and that sounds bad, and that sounds good, and that sounds bad. And now I'm going to garble it up and turn it into my, my own personal Excuse belief. to go murder a bunch of people. Right. And so, you know, I think we all know what some of the answers to this are. Ban assault weapons and, you know. <laughs> I just don't even know how you could... It just makes me feel so hopeless. Like, how could you implement it? Because all these people who who have stockpiled a bunch of assault weapons are are the types who are like, pry it from my cold dead hands. Right. Like, yeah. If the government types. comes in and takes it from me, that's fascism. Where it's like, no, we're just trying to save lives. Thanks. You never should have been yeah. able to buy these in the first place. Not assault weapons. Not weapons specifically designed to harm humans. I, yeah. I like just, for war. And they're not, yeah. I mean, we've had all these conversations before, but I just, like, I don't know. I'm really, I really, I'm not sure what's going to happen from here. Yeah. You know? But it's it's worth it's, looking it's, at it's stuff It's really like depressing that, um, that 
tweet that's gone viral that's the showing the number of uh, mass shootings in all these like uh, big, you know, right. countries. Yeah. Wealthy. Zero 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 one one one. America is at like two hundred fifty this year yep. alone for twenty nineteen. Yep. yep. Very upsetting. Yeah. And our healthcare is not gonna cover the amount of victims that we seem to churn out. It's all it's all really fucked up. But yeah, anyway, I just kind of wanted to share that because I thought it was interesting. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Dude, should we talk about a, a lady? lady? Let's talk about a lady. <laughs> Uh, I'm ready. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I am, honestly. <laughs> this is what happens when we take a week off. Yeah, we took a little week off, and now we're trying to get back into the groove. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's taking some time. Yeah. It's okay. Okay. So, this week, uh, I'm going to talk to you about a lady who's been on my list for a while, but has kind of been on the back burner because... In my brain, I was like, oh, well, she's not that obscure. Everybody's going to know who she is. And I don't even know if that's actually the case. Just because, I, I don't know, I feel like that's a very self-centered thing to think. Like, just because you know who somebody is, everybody else is going to know who they are. Like, literally, what were we just talking about? Scruff McGruff. And you were like, who? <laughs> yeah, but you knew, my brain is, But you yeah. needed to be reminded. But that's all I'm saying. All right. It's like you can't ever make assumptions. I'm with you. Um, so today, I want to talk to you about Nellie Bly. Oh, do you know Nellie Bly? I do know Nellie Bly. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's a good one. She is a good one. She's one that you're right that like, I'm sure a lot of people have heard the name and don't know why they know it. Right. So I think this will be very good. I'm really excited. This will be illuminating. My sources are Mental Floss, PBS, and HistoryNet.com. Yes. Yes. Uh, so for anybody who doesn't know who Nellie Bly was, <clears throat> she was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran. Whoa. On May 5th, 1864, into a blended family in Cochran Mills, Pennsylvania. Her father and the town's namesake. I was going to say. <laughs> uh-huh. Judge Michael Cochran had brought to his second marriage 10 children from his first. Oh, God. God. <laughs> I feel bad for them, that woman. Elizabeth, well, the first wife, Elizabeth was his 13th child. Oh, my God. I think he had five kids with his second wife. So he had 15 children total. Oh, God. But clearly he was a judge and had a town named after him and he had lots of businesses and stuff. So like, he could afford all those kids. Thank God. Yeah. So she was uh, his 13th child and arguably his most rebellious 
<laughs> and she was uh, known as a child uh, by the nickname Pink for the girly shade her mother favored on her. Is girly an editorialization from the article that you found? Mm-hmm. Because pink wasn't pink a boy's color at that time? I think so. I think that was editorializing on their part. But it was definitely a standout color. Yeah. That's right. for sure. I'm into that. It was a, a pink. shade. Pink or pinky, I think. I saw different articles that she was called pinky. I like that. Um, so That's very cool. She had great confidence. Brooke Kroger wrote in Nellie Bly, Daredevil reporter and feminist. While everyone else dressed in drab browns and grays, she stood out in pink. Her mother taught her how to attract attention and revel in it. These were lessons that were never lost on her. <laughs> which is which is like interesting considering what she went on to do. Mm-hmm. Um, pink was six years old when her dad suddenly died. Oh. But um, as the 13th child, presumably he was not young. I don't, it doesn't say how he yeah. died, but... Anyway, um, but then her mother married an abusive drunk. Oh, no. And at 14, she testified at their divorce hearing, Ooh. which is crazy. And I would never want to be in that type of position. God, no. But would if I had to. Um, yeah. After a semester of high Jesus. school, she dropped out to help her mother run a boarding house in Pittsburgh. And then at the age of 21, <laughs> I love this, she was annoyed uh, when the local newspaper had a column uh, a columnist wrote a flippant essay on the theme, What Are Women Good For? Oh, God. Which was basically just saying having babies and cleaning the house. Oh, good, 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 good. She wrote a blistering reply and signed it, Poor Little Orphan Girl. <laughs> oh, shit. So apparently the newspaper's editor was impressed by her letter and like wrote a, a, a public post in the next issue because it was so popular and was like, Hey, who are you? Come forward. I might have a job for you. Um, fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he offered her $5 a week as a reporter. Jesus. That's like the best way to get a job. Mm-hmm. Where you like write an anonymous letter and everyone loves it so much. The editor's like, hey, uh, do you want to come work for me? <laughs> yeah. You seem cool. I wonder if secretly maybe he thought it was like a dude. You I, never I, know. I don't know. But yeah. I would think that a woman writing and being like, excuse me. This essay about what are women good for? She was 21 years old. I, think I that's love so that. Funny. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> then she decided um, for her byline, um, she chose the name Nellie Bly for her reporter name. Um, it was a variant on uh, a Stephen Foster song called Nellie Bly, but it was N-E-L-L-Y, and she uh, spelled it N-E-L-L-I-E. And there are, like, differing reports as to whether or not that was like a typo or mm. if she chose that intentionally. Yeah. But that's cool though. Yeah. I like that. She did it then. about a song. Apparently the song is also about um, a black woman. So it's interesting that she chose that name. Anyway. <clears throat> so she began working as an undercover reporter. Um, she uh, would do sweatshop exposes oh. because at the time, like women, working class women were like in sweatshops and, having horrifyingly bad conditions to work in. And so she would go undercover, get a job and then basically be like, this is how shitty it is to work here. And, but then people started recognizing her, I guess in, in Pittsburgh, when she would go into sweatshops. Um, so, uh, 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 she got reassigned to society and gardening pages and decided she didn't like that. Of course she did. So she quit and left for Mexico 
She went to Mexico. What? Yeah, and worked as a foreign correspondent. Oh. In Mexico. She, like, wrote a, a series of essays or a book um, about life in Mexico and, and what, like, Mexican people's lives were like. It was, like, one of the first times in Western uh, literature, like, news reports that uh, marijuana was ever mentioned. Really? Yes. I, in like, what? read... She wrote in her book because she was talking about how a lot of working class Mexican people would roll cigars with this herb called marijuana oh, shit. <laughs> that was illegal but it would it would quote unquote intoxicate you for five days which i think is kind of funny but that's what her report yeah especially was. then yeah like marijuana and, now and, is and so much she stronger. wrote about how they would hot box <laughs> not hot box what the fuck is the term where you blow into someone else's mouth oh um fuck i don't remember but it was like these dudes would sit in a ring and there would only be one cigar between them but one would take a hit off of it and then they would just blow into each other's mouths in a ring and i was like that's homoerotic yeah that's what they do because now now we do it it's like meant to be a sexy thing if somebody does it to you yeah it's pretty heteronormative you see that in movies it's usually a very sensual thing that is really, really interesting. Uh-huh. And so nobody sent her to Mexico. She just decided I was going to go. That's what it would seem. She's like, I'm wow. sick of this gardening thing. I'm going to go. Um, but she got she had to leave Mexico uh, in a hurry because she protested the arrest of a local journalist um, because the local journalist criticized the government. And she was like, hey, mm. what the fuck? That's not cool. What is this that you're you're limiting free press and criticism? And so Mexican authorities were like, well, we're going to arrest you next. And she's <laughs> like, okay, bye. <laughs> like, yes, that is the logical next uh, step here. Yeah. So then she moved to New York. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you do. That's what you do. And it was New York was and I think probably still is one of the biggest uh, places for journalists and and things. I that think there are sense. other big newspapers around the country, but like then it was like New York was the place. Yeah. Um, so she spent four months uh, in America's newspaper capital and couldn't get a job. Um, and but she, she was 23 at this point and already a seasoned reporter. And she finally pestered her way to a trial assignment. Uh, in September 1887, she talked her way into the offices of the New York World and buttonholed the managing editor. John Cockrell called her bluff, said that she should prove her mettle by going undercover as a patient on Blackwell's Island, <laughs> which is in the East River. The island was home to the Women's Lunatic Asylum, a font of constant complaint about brutality and neglect. America's 19th century press occasionally covered asylums, but in a mild and substantial way. And... Uh, the editor wanted to get the real story and said she would have to get herself involuntarily committed, live for 10 days as a mental patient. Oh, God. So she was like, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. I'll I take can that, that on. I can do that. Because she's used to the sweatshop exposés. She's used to going undercover. But and I she's used to being brash and making bold decisions. That, yeah. But I don't think she was uh, prepared for exactly what she was going to face. How could she be? She would be the first person reporting on it. So, mm-hmm. like, there would be no way to know. Because before that, when, when reporters would come, they would put on their best face. Like, they knew it was a reporter coming. Yep. So they would show the prettier sides of it. Yeah. Rather and I, than the actual. I assume you have to get there by boat. Yeah, it's Roosevelt Island now. Oh, 
Oh. Yeah, it's weird to think, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. So, yeah. So, like, if a reporter got on a boat, like, they would have to know that somebody was getting on the boat yeah. to come to the island. So you have to go in one of two ways. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Interesting. Later, when a colleague asked the editor exactly how he expected to retrieve his prospective reporter from the madhouse, he said, I don't know. Oh, my God. So they went That's in without question. really. That, not a real big plan. Because they could, I mean, if she got in there and spent 10 days there and said, okay, I'm a reporter, I'm done now, and fuck you guys, like, they could conceivably, oops, sorry. They could be like, no, you're crazy. No, you're crazy, and we're keeping you indefinitely. Ooh, God. Um, It says here, uh, Nellie Bly knew little about mental illness. Well, who did at the time? Um, But she knew how badly she needed and wanted a job. So... She moved into uh, a place in the Bowery, which was super working class at the time, called yeah. the Temporary Home for Working Women. Um, and she checked in under the name Nellie Brown. <laughs> and while she was there, she would stare into the mirror, working hard on looking crazy. <laughs> so she'd practice looking crazy. Oh my God. And she said, quote, I read how crazy people have staring faraway eyes. So I opened mine as wide as possible and stared unblinking at my own reflection. Working wintry, on that Oscar. Uh-huh. Wintry chills ran up and down my back in the very mockery of the perspiration, which was slowly but surely taking the curl out of my bangs. Oh, oh my God. And so while she was there, like, this is crazy that she had to do this in order to get, because she had to get herself involuntarily committed. Right. So other people had to take steps to get her to go here. She couldn't yeah. just show up and be like, hi, I'm crazy. Can I check in? <laughs> so she lived here. And then while she was living in this women's boarding house, which was like a temporary home for all these women moving through, uh, she started ranting incoherently in her own apartment, but loudly behaving erratically. And within a day, fellow residents declared that she was out of her mind. Quote, I'm afraid oh. to stay with such a crazy being in the house, a resident <laughs> told the landlady. Oh Another said, she'll murder us all before morning. <laughs> so she stayed up two nights in a row, which, of course, this would make anybody a little, like, fucking kooky. Wild. Um, and on her second night, helped along by blood curdling screams from the next room oh. and rats scampering across her pillow. So I don't know who else was screaming in this place, but it doesn't sound like it was a very pleasant place to <laughs> no. live. Um. Jesus Christ. She was told later that the screams next door had arisen from a nightmare in which the dreamer imagined Nellie rushing at her with a knife. Oh, this shit only took one day. And these women were like, (laughs) so fucking terrified of her. Night number two, someone else was having nightmares about her. And she said to, when she learned about that, she's like, it was the greatest night of my life that she scared someone so much with her acting. Oh my God. That they had a nightmare about her. That just she was real spurred proud of her on more. Yeah. That's fucking insane. Yeah. Being tagged a loon was easy. <laughs> Boarding house employees contacted the authorities after two days. Oh, my God. <laughs> Policemen then escorted Nellie Brown to court, where she spun a convincing tale, claiming her real name was Nellie Moreno, a Cuban maiden of genteel Spanish lineage, suffering from amnesia from an unnamed trauma that left her friendless and abandoned in an unforgiving city. What? The judge, thinking Nellie Bly, some fellow sweetheart gone astray, summoned the press. Maybe a news story would alert uh, the lost soul's family 
of where she was. Oh, boy. Fearful of being recognized, she covered her face and turned away, madly shouting, I don't want to see reporters. So she used it as fuel. Yep. Because that yep. was a real fear where she's like, oh, no, other reporters are going to know who I am. Fuck. Yeah, my cover is going to be blown in an instant. Yep. So the judge then sent her to Bellevue Hospital, where medical experts concluded, medical experts, yeah, yeah okay. concluded that she suffered from dementia and delusions of persecution. <laughs> delusions of persecution? Okay. Yeah, and yeah that's so a mental illness now. They immediately were like, send her to the asylum. So it took her like a wow. matter of days. Wow. And she was pretending. It's insane. It, um, it is. It really is. Mm-hmm. I think, and pe- at that time, people were so willing to believe that women were crazy. I mean, there's a reason that hysteria was like a thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe not at that time. Maybe earlier than that. But I think a little earlier than that. But but yeah. people really did believe that like women's constitution was so delicate that they were more prone to madness. Yeah. Than men were. No, and it's funny because I've been reading Starvation Heights, as I, I told you oh, yesterday, right. which is the book that's about uh, uh, Linda Hazard right. from a couple Who episodes ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I've been reading that book. And one of the sisters, the Williamson sisters that died in her care, was told her whole life that she had a, a uterus that was tilted. And that's what made most of her illness happen. <laughs> that they were give like a male doctor was giving her like a... a a wad of cloth, basically a tampon soaked in mercury or some shit, not mercury, but something gross to like sterilize to help it lift yeah. the uterus because it was insane, Jesus. insane. The things that they were like, well, this is clearly a female problem. So here you go. <laughs> How do you, would you know without x-rays or anything like, oh, yeah, your uterus is just it sits too far back on your spine. Like what? It's, you know, those, uh, quote, medical professionals, as you said, or experts, whatever. Medicine really was not a field that was uh, worth trusting until relatively recently. And even now it's like some some wings of it. You're like, "Mm, oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. But a lot of it is is much better. We're we're, I'm so glad that I did not live in this era with an illness. No. Yeah. Um, So she's on the ferry going to the asylum on Blackwell's Island, now Roosevelt Island. Oh, my God. Um, She obviously was unable to have, like, a pen and paper, so she couldn't take notes. She had to memorize details and pay close attention. Oh, shit. So starting right away from the stifling, filthy ferry to the island, lots of screaming and crying. Yeah. Uh, While she was en route, she saw two coarse, massive female attendants who expectorated tobacco juice about on the floor in a manner more skillful than charming. Ew. So just the floor of the ferry was covered in chew. Ew. The female guards were just like spitting out on the floor. God. Anyway. Opened as America's first municipal mental hospital in 1839. Blackwell's Island was meant to be a state-of-the-art institution committed to moral, humane rehabilitation of its patients. But when funding got cut, the progressive plans went out the window. Oh, boy. And it ended up as a scary asylum staffed in part by inmates of a nearby penitentiary. What? Staffed? What, in staffed in what way? Like guards. Oh, my God. <laughs> what? Oh. That sounds like a real nightmare, right? That I mean, that's the insane leading the insane. Yeah. Gross. That's that's 
that's but also i'm sure there's a lot that's problematic about jails then just as there is now but still i don't want to be in a place where the guards are are prison inmates uh absolutely not female prison inmates or male presumably female who knows i don't know um anyway no that's horrifying yeah Although other writers had reported on conditions at the asylum, notably Charles Dickens in 1842, who described its listless madhouse air as very painful, oh. Nellie Bly was the first reporter to go undercover. <clears throat> uh, in the 1800s, of course, mental illness was a mystery. Society viewed the mad as murderously violent or benign oddballs. Uh, Blackwell's Island was uh, a stop on what was known as an asylum tourism circuit. So, like, rich people would go gawk at asylum patients. Like, they would take picnics. Oh. They would go look at that. Like, it was like visiting the zoo. They would go see locked up people who were crazy. Jesus Christ. And comment on how lucky the residents were to inhabit such beautiful grounds. I guess this is also around the time when, uh, like, people would go en masse to like cemeteries and they were very excited by like creepy shit. Yeah. Is that, is that kind of around the same time? Oh, for sure. But it's like, I wonder if that's part of it. It's like, there's this weird obsession with like awfulness. Yeah. Being like, Oh, I'm so lucky that I'm not here, but aren't they so lucky? Cause it's so beautiful here. Some real fucked up. Yeah. There was a, apparently also a Scribner's monthly entry for Blackwell's, which promised a pastoral experience. And the New York Times had weekly picks of the asylum's most intriguing characters. So they would do like a, a what is it, a character? Like a profile of somebody from yes, there? Yes, thank you, profile. Yeah, every week. They're weekly picks of, of the. This week it's Tina. The Tina's the craziest out of all of them because uh-huh. she So they ate made it seem paste. like it was a nice experience. Jesus Christ. Um, yes, Kitty. And so immediately when she got there, she recognized that the conditions were beyond disgusting. They ate rancid, rotten food. Um, they didn't have clean water. They were forced to eat. Like, they had forced feedings. There were fire hazards. And patients were tied down all the time. Um, quote, witchy, vicious nurses choked, beat, and harassed deluded patients. Uh, she wrote, I was forced to share, share towels with crazy patients who had the most vile eruptions all over their faces. Yikes. Mm. Shocked. She pretty much immediately dropped her crazy act. She, she was like one yeah. day in and she just stopped. And quote, the more sanely I talked and acted, the crazier they thought I was. Whoa. Ooh. So once you're committed... You could act completely normal, but it's still that uh, uh, what, the Milgram's prison experiment or whatever. Oh. It's that same sort of thing where they're like, you're yeah. a lesser than person. It doesn't matter if you're acting fully within your fa- like mental faculties. Right. You got here for a reason. Yep. So that gives me license to treat you however the fuck I want. Yep. It's a fucking awful And they just saw trip. her as, as another crazy person. Oh, God. Um, That's fucking sinister. Yeah. Uh, when she got there, she had to strip for a bath. Three buckets of freezing cold water dumped over her head. Uh, quote, my teeth chattered and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue, she wrote. The sensation felt as if I was drowning. So she was basically waterboarded when she got in there. Oh, God. Um, 
While she was still dripping wet, she was shoved into a short cotton flannel slip that said Lunatic Asylum B.I.H. 6 for Blackwell's Island Hall 6. Attendants hurried her into a room with one bed whose mattress sloped steeply from the center. She asked for a proper nightgown. Quote, we have no such things here, an attendant said. You're in a public institution. Don't expect anything or any kindness here because you're not going to get it. And then they locked her in her room. So they were tra- they were treating these patients exactly like they were probably treating the prisoners at the uh, jail nearby. <laughs> yeah. Um, howls and screams through the whole night. Um, she learned that one of the screamers, a pretty patient, had died. Oh. Uh, nurses beat her, pinned her naked in a cold bath, and threw her into bed. Cause of death, convulsions, doctors said. Um, taking careful notes later on both her own experiences and those of her fellow inmates, like she memorized all this shit, she painted a dire picture in which there were 16 doctors assigned to take care of some 1,600 inmates. 1,600 people? That... Under the care of 16 people. Oh, my that's a hundred. God. That's 100 patients per doctor. So the people who are, are really responsible for these patients are the guards, mm-hmm. right? And maybe the nurses. And the nurses. Yeah. I assume they very actually rarely saw any doctors. Excepting, too, she recorded, I've never seen them pay any attention to the patients. <laughs> there you and go. And you think about how, like, jaded and, and tired those doctors must be, and they get driven to this point of, I don't care. Yeah. They're cynical. Yeah. Well, we're not equipped to actually help these people. No. I mean, we're, even now we're not equipped and only, to help it them. And only, she said, only two of them she witnessed even trying. Ooh. Um. She also questioned a judge's ability to pronounce a woman insane by merely bidding her good morning and refusing to hear her pleas of release. Even the sick ones, the legitimately mentally ill ones, know it's useless to say anything because the answer will be that it is their imagination. Oh, God. Because that it made her question like, wow, it was so easy for me to get here. It didn't take a whole lot. Um... She also reported on the cultural insensitivity and language barriers experienced by immigrant women who spoke little or no English. Um, She realized that many of her fellow inmates were simply poor immigrants. Oh, God. One woman's heavily accented German was mistaken for gibberish. (gasps) And it had led to a diagnosis of madness. She was just a poor German woman. And they were like, oh, you don't speak English. So clearly you're crazy. You're speaking gibberish. You're not speaking a real language. You're just talking in garbled sounds. Yep. Therefore, wow. A jealous Jewish husband had his wife committed. Oh. There was a chambermaid in there who had lost her temper one time, so her co-workers had her committed. This is what I'm talking about. Like, people were so ready to believe that women were just fucking psychotic. Mm-hmm. You could you could be institutionalized for. Anything for losing your temper one time at if work. If you were a fucking woman. Yep. Um, God damn. Yeah. She strolled the grounds where she saw attendants guarding patients walking two by two. Nurses accompanied a line of women clad in similar strange dresses and comical straw hats and shawls marching slowly and noisily. Quote, they were cursing, yelling, singing, and praying, she said. The marchers were the most violent cases from the nearby lodge. A rope looped through the wide leather belts that was harnessed around another 52 women uh, 
and they so they were tied to each other like mules pulling an iron cart holding a pair of invalids so all like the extremely violent women they just tied them all to each other and led them around here's your daily walk yeah um apparently near the end of her stay so she was only here 10 days let's let's remember that 10 days um near the end of her stay her cover was almost blown because there was a fellow reporter that she'd known for years from pittsburgh who was sent by another newspaper to follow up on patient nelly moreno oh shit his name was george mccain and he talked his way onto the island by claiming to be searching for a female relative uh an attendant was walking him around and he ran into her and she whispered don't give me away please and so he turned to the attendant and said, no, this isn't the young woman I came in search of. Good for him. And left. And wow. then finally, uh, the editor kept his promise. He sent an attorney to arrange for her release. Thank God. Can you imagine if he didn't keep his word? I'm sure she was terrified of that, too. Well, the fir- after that first night, she was probably going, what the fuck what did the I fuck? sign up for? Yeah. How- we never determined how I'm getting out of here. And now I'm really fucking regretting it. Because I'm not even acting insane anymore. I'm not putting on an act for anybody. I will be and here they forever. they still don't care. Yeah. If no one comes for me, I will just be here forever. Yes. So two Ooh. days after she was released, the newspaper ran the first installment of her story, which was entitled Behind Asylum Bars. Uh, the psychiatric doctors who'd been fooled offered apologies, excuses, and defenses. Mm-hmm. The story traveled across the country with papers lauding Nellie Bly's courageous achievement. Almost overnight, she became a star journalist. Damn. But for her, it wasn't about the fame. Quote, I have one consolation for my work, she wrote. On the strength of my story, the Committee of Appropriation provides $1 million more than was ever before given for the benefit of the insane. All right. So, so because she got she, funds. She, yeah, because of what she did, you know, those funds that had been cut mm-hmm. before, there was public outrage and everybody was like, what the hell? And so then a million dollars, which is so much money back then, yeah, was allocated immediately, basically, to start yeah. helping take care of the mentally ill. Really wish that that would happen now with our fucked up detention centers on the border. <laughs> this, I mean, it really does feel familiar in that way. Yeah, just except because... for now nobody believes yeah. news stories anymore. Right. Because of the decrying of fake news and... Uh-huh. And all this shit. But even so, like, we are seeing, like, AOC, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going in and talking about the conditions like she sees. in this w- same way. And, mm-hmm. and people are like, yeah, but they're criminals. It's like, actually, seeking asylum is not a crime. No, it's not a crime. No. Um, so anyway, it just is an interesting parallel that, yeah. you know. That's part of what I was thinking. Yeah. Good job. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, allegedly, the city had already been considering increasing the budget for asylums, but her article certainly served as a catalyst to push stuff along faster. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, quote, born silly, Yurene Little Page was a 33-year-old woman who claimed she was 18 and would grow hysterical if contradicted, Bly wrote. Nurses would slap her face and knock her head, causing her to cry more, so they choked her and then dragged her into the closet. Oh, the insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It's easy to get in, but once you're there, it's impossible to get out. Both editions sold out. Letters flooded the world newsroom, stunt factor aside, until Bly, reporters rarely attempted so grand a deception, and few had produced so dramatic a narrative. 
Her reporting presented not only shocking content, but substantive allegations and evidence to support them. The island's barred windows and locked doors were disasters in waiting. Tyrannical nurses choked, beat, and harassed patients. Food was rotten, utensils non-existent. Patient upon patient used the same murky bathwater. Oh, God. The asylum washed patient uniforms monthly. Oh, God. Quote, patients are injected with so much morphine and chloral that they are made crazy. Lyra. I was going to ask, actually, if, if you in your research, did, did she get medicated? Was she medicated at all? I think she was at some point, but I don't think she was acting crazy enough to warrant like being beaten or choked. Like she saw right. the things happening and was like, well, I'm just going to keep quiet and, and observe and not give them a reason yeah. to sedate me. Um, yeah. And yeah. she testified about her observations before a grand jury. Uh, oh. In response, Dr. Charles Simmons, head of city's charities and corrections board, invited New York City Mayor Abra- Abram Hewitt and the Board of Estimate to inspect the asylum. So she joined that. It was like less than a month later. She went on a tour now in her capacity as a reporter, by which time the asylum had already cleaned up its act and fired incompetent workers. All right. Less than a month later, which is cool. Yep. Um, Clean up or no, the jury recommended a million dollar increase in the Department of Public Charities and Corrections budget for care of poor unfortunates. Um... She urged um, the transfer of foreign patients, um, better food and better staff reduction of patient population and installation of safety locks in case of fire. And all those recommendations that she made were implemented. (laughs) Wow. Um, And so she had earned herself a reputation uh, and now wanted to keep it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) Um, So that editor (laughs) obviously hired her. Uh, at $12 a week Would as a be staff writer. And she was automatically a newsroom star. <laughs> For two years, she repeated variations on her nuthouse gimmick. Uh, she went incognito as a maid and exposed crooked employment agencies. Uh, she researched illicit trade in children and bought a newborn baby for $10. What? Yeah. So like child trafficking. She went undercover for that, <laughs> which is nuts. Um she remained a, no, uh, a notorious, if anonymous, figure until, posing as a thief, she got herself arrested to investigate how women fared in New York City jails, but the guards recognized her immediately and gave her royal treatment. Oh, shit. While she was in jail. Oh, damn it. <laughs> nice try, Nellie. We know who you are. We're going to treat you really well so that you talk really, really, you talk up our prisons. Um, and that's probably how she knew she was made, eh? Yeah. So she realized that she probably had to stop undercover work because she was too famous now to do it darn yep um so she moved to stunts like not like jumping out of a plane type oh. stunts but like doing things for for the the stunt value of it um hmm. so she decided to to uh do her own rendition of uh jules verne's around the world in 80 days oh yep 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 um she was just Rem- nope. She was ruminating on that idea and just exclaimed, I wish I was at the other end of the earth. And the next day pitched it. She pitched a real world circumnavigation that would beat 80 days. Um, and she would write about it the whole time. Uh, her editors who wanted to send a mail reporter resisted. Uh, the paper's business manager explained how a man could travel the globe unaccompanied, but not a woman. And that, like other female travelers, she would carry so much luggage as to defeat herself. Oh, of course, of course. We just can't help it. 
this editorialization here is great. Besides, he mansplained, you speak nothing but English. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Very well, she said. Start the man. I'll start the same day for another newspaper and I'll beat him. Good for her. And so her editors were like, fine. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, you can go. Um, After a year's planning, uh, she took 200 pounds in British gold sovereigns and Bank of England notes uh, and arrived November 14th, 1889 at Hoboken, New Jersey Pier to board the Hamburg America Line steamship Augusta Victoria. Uh, By the way, she's 5'5 and 112 pounds. So she was like pretty small. Um, She sported a custom dress and a jaunty ghillie cap resembling Sherlock Holmes's deerstalker and draping her neck to ankle, her trademarks, checkered scotch Ulster coat. Oh, so she had a new trademark to do by this point. Let's talk about what she wore. (laughs) Let's talk about what she wore. She carried a 16 by 7 inch satchel. That's it. Oh, in terms of luggage? Yeah, I think so. I think that that's the point that they're making. Her 24,899-mile journey, she saw it as a vacation, since she'd been working for three years straight, was to carry her to London, the Mediterranean, Egypt, through the Suez Canal to Ceylon, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan, over the Pacific to San Francisco, where she would then hop an eastbound train. Readers could ride with her in their heads. The paper was promoting an illustrated game and a pool guessing details of her arrival. Wow, that's very, like, contemporary. Yeah. Merchandising the whole thing and making it a sort of... Can you guess correctly? Like, win some money. Like, when will she make it? That's very smart. Um, She had Sisters in Spirit writing for publications around New York. Uh, One was aristocratic Louisiana-born Elizabeth Bisland. Uh, Like Nellie... Bisland had clawed her way off the society pages and into hard news and features. Uh, tall and elegant, a published poet who whose copy was more literary than Bly's. Bisland, <laughs> 25, had joined Cosmopolitan as an editor. Out of competition and to publicize his new property, Cosmo publisher John Brisbane Walker went one-on-one with the world, dispatching Bisland the same day as Bly, only six hours after pitching Bisland on the trip. So they're like, let's have her go, too. They can race each other, basically. But Nellie didn't know. And she. Rude. It was like we they pitched the idea. And then six years, six hours later, she was like on a boat. Um, God damn it. She would travel west, recording her Christmas spent steaming through the waters that washed the shores of the Indian Empire. Um, they both moved by any means necessary from luxury liner to burrow to rickshaw to horse. Uh, Nellie Bly powered through monsoons, a smallpox scare, a five-day delay in Colombo, Ceylon, and on the final leg, an encounter with a monkey, (laughs) said to foreshadow bad luck. Not until reaching Hong Kong on Christmas Eve did Nellie learn she had a rival, Um, which is so funny to me that she just... And how did she figure it out? Uh, Oh, an official of the Occidental and Oriental Steamship Company told her Elizabeth Bisland had passed through three days earlier. Oh, going the other direction. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Bisland kept that lead until she reached Southampton, England, where the German steamer EMS cast off without her, even though Cosmopolitan (laughs) Publisher uh, had bribed the shipping company to keep the liner at the dock until she arrived. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, Her only option was a slow boat out of Queenstown, Ireland, that departed January 18th into a storm-tossed North Atlantic in the worst weather that they had seen uh, in many years. Oh. Uh, 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 uh. So while she was in France, Nellie 
called on Jules Verne and his wife at their estate. Oh. And uh, Jules Verne uh, encouraged her to break his character's record, which I think is sweet. That is very, I like that little little detail. Um, She'd become a commodity. Trading cards, games, and other products bore her image. A hotel, a train, and a racehorse were named Nellie Bly after the world's most famous woman. (laughs) Arriving in Jersey City, New Jersey by train on January 25th, 1890 at 3.51 p.m., she completed her trip in 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds, beating the fictional Phineas Fogg. Yes, Nellie! Elizabeth Bisland finished four and a half days later. <laughs> still beat 80 days, though. Yeah. But, you know. It's only been 78, right? But still, fuck you, Cosmo. Yeah, 76. I can't do math. Don't make me do math. I would never. Two, two plus four is six, I Deanna. just said yes. I just condoned I, your number without even thinking of it, about it. I'm sweaty. <laughs> uh, after publishing a book, in seven stages, a flying trip around the world, the publicity-shy Bisland left the U.S. for a year among a London's literati. She was like a rich girl, so mm, yeah. she was able to just be like, mm, I'm done. Ding, ding. Nellie Bly's escapade had multiplied world circulation, the, the newspaper. Amazing. <clears throat> but management proffered no bonus or raise for her. Well, why would they? Mm. So she resigned <clears throat> and embarked on a lecture tour. Uh, she earned... $9,500 for that lecture tour, which is today a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, please. She published Around the World in 72 Days, a printing of 10,000 copies, which sold out. Um, she signed a three-year contract to produce serial fiction for New York Family Story Paper, earning $10,000 the first year and 15000 the next two. Damn! Yee, yee, yee. That's, that's so much money. Uh, in 1890, her brother Charles died, so she stepped in to care for her widowed sister-in-law and their two children. Um, in 1893, a new editor took over the World Sunday Features edition and persuaded her to rejoin the staff. And the paper slashed the headline Nellie Bly again on the front page. <laughs> she covered a rail car workers strike against the Pullman Company, the fate of women in New York City jails and factories and corruption among New York state legislatures. She interviewed Susan B. Anthony and radical <coughs> leaders Emma Goldman and Eugene V. Debs. She often proclaimed no desire to marry, but in 1895, she wed millionaire Robert Livingston Seaman. Uh, the man was 73 and 40 years her senior. Oh. Was very rich, but obviously she was also very rich. She didn't need it. Um, he owned the Ironclad Manufacturer Company, maker of milk cans, barrels, and other steel products. Well, well, well. I think being in steel at that time was like big money. Yes, ma'am. Fans joked she was only in it for the story. Oh, shit. <laughs> but she retired from journalism and began running her husband's 1,500 worker factory and even patented a milk can design uh, after her husband's death in 1904. They were married for like eight years because he was already in his 70s when they got married oh. <laughs> at the turn of the century. Man, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> after So after his death in 1904, um, Nellie Bly became one of the world's leading female industrialists, providing employees gymnasiums, libraries, and health care. Oh my God, she was the early Google. <laughs> but she'd she'd seen shitty conditions in her time as a journalist, and was like, "Yeah, I want to make sure if I'm running this company that it's not going to be like that for my employees." This is why women need to be in charge of things. 
Well, it's why people who know what it's like at the bottom need to be in charge at the top. Yep. That's why all people need to work for six months in a, in a stupid service job so they see how shitty people are and they will be nicer. Yep. Agreed. Boom. Done. Um, we need to start our own country. <laughs> um, We're mandatory six-month retail experience. Or work, just work as a waitress. It's just like... like- you know how what is or a it bartender Norway or where is it where there's like mandatory army service Israel does that Israel does that I think there's an uh, there's but, another yeah, yeah European country but yeah that's us but you know for customer service customer service yeah uh, she uh, in August 1914 boarded the RMS Oceanic bound for three weeks in Vienna. She stayed four years in Vienna. <laughs> uh, when war broke out in Europe, she obtained press cadet- credentials, so she came out of retirement <laughs> during oh, World War Oh, shit. I. She's like, I will be your war correspondent. Yep. Through the war, uh, the New York Evening Journal published Nellie Bly on the Firing Line, a column Whoa. in which she revived the prose style of her scrambling days. Quote, the ground was strewn straw, a mixture of senseless human beings, knapsacks, a flask, discarded bloody bandages, a shoe, a gun, and matter unspeakable. One motionless creature had his cap on his head. Great black circles were around his sunken eyes. Black hollows were around his nose and his ears were black. Still, he lived. Dying, I believe. I staggered out into the muddy road. I would rather look on guns and hear the cutting of the air by a shot that brought a kinder death. Whoa, Nellie. Yep. Upon the signing of an armistice in November 1918, she returned home to America. Uh, to New York. I feel like such a nerd. I'm sorry. <laughs> she yeah. continued to write uh, for the Journaland. What? That doesn't make any sense. She continued to, to be a journalist um, uh, and worked to aid abandoned children and orphans. And she died in 1922 of pneumonia at St. Mark's Hospital in New York City. She was 57 years old. And at the time, summing her up, an obitu- obituarist wrote that she was the best reporter in America. Damn. And tireless. Yeah. She was tenacious as fuck. Man, all of the shit that she covered. She could have just rested on her laurels and been like, this is my big story. Now I can just relax. But she continued to try and expose corruption and and mistreatment of humans. And then took what she learned and made made it. Yeah. A successful company. Treated her employees right. And I just love that she made a shitload of money on her own, then married an extremely wealthy man who then died and left her all his shit. And she still was like, I think I'll be a war correspondent. Like, she was not like, cool, I can just relax now. Yeah. I have all the money I have ever needed. She ran his company instead of, like, immediately turning around and selling it because she didn't know what to do with it. Right. And then went on to cover the war. Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's insane. She's insane. Well, I guess she's not, is she? (laughs) Dude. I did not realize she was that incredible. I didn't either. I just knew about the 10 days in a madhouse thing. Yeah. Yeah. I watched, um, there's an episode of Drunk History about her. Mm. And that's mostly what they cover is the is the asylum yeah. stay. Actually, well, usually drunk history is about one event. Yeah, exactly. So Laura Dern is uh, Nellie Bly Aww, in that episode. Just I love you Laura know, Dern. just so you know, yeah, she's the fucking best. 
So I, I knew a little bit, but I didn't know. I just had no idea she was so ambitious and so just fearless and tireless. fearless and tireless. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, God. Yep. What a life. What a life. Indeed. Thanks, man. And she died at 57, which is pretty young. No, I know. When you said 57, I was like, she did all of that before she was 60? Well, she was a seasoned reporter by the time she was 23. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yeah. She'd already covered Mexico and, and marijuana in Mexico and come back and... Yeah, and protested uh, uh, arresting journalists for criticism of government and... <laughs> She's a badass, man. She was a badass. Wearing pink. <laughs> oh, Known for wearing man. pink as a kid. I love that. Oh, man. Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly. Elizabeth Cochran. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. I think that was kind of long, but. Uh, no, but it was awesome. Yay. Long, uh, long because like she had a lot kitty? to, like, cover. What are you crying about? Kitty's always crying about food. Um, do you have any on this day in history? I do. I, there are like a number of interesting ones to me. Um, so this episode, I believe, comes out August 7th. So uh, August 7th, 1890. Anna Mann's daughter. I'm not going to. Mann's daughter. I don't know. She's <laughs> Swedish and there's a weird on one of the A's. Oh. So anyway, mm-hmm. she becomes the last woman in Sweden to be executed. Oh. 1890. Uh-huh. Oh, Sweden. Uh-huh. Um, it was for a murder, apparently. That seems fair. Yeah. Um, 1909, Alice Hyler Ramsey and three friends become the first women to complete a transcontinental car trip, taking 59 oh. days to travel from New York, New York to San Francisco, California. Well, look at them. Maybe they were inspired by Nellie. Could be. Could be. Uh, 1962. Uh, Canadian-born American pharmacologist Francis Oldham Kelsey was awarded the U.S. President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service for her refusal to authorize thalidomide. Her career intersected with the passage of laws strengthening FDA oversight of pharmaceuticals. She was the second woman to be awarded the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service by President John F. Kennedy. Whoa. Yeah, because thalidomide causes birth defects. Mm. And she was like, I don't think we should approve this. That's fun. Yep. Uh, 1974, Philippe Petit performs a high-wire act between the Twin Towers of the World Twade, Twade Center. Twade Center. 1,368 feet in the air. Oh. Which is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie. I know. I it's, just, I couldn't even. It's, I'm freaked out by heights. And so French. Ugh. August 7th, 1987, Lynn Cox becomes the first person to swim from the United States to the Soviet Union, crossing the Bering Strait from Little... Diomede Island in Alaska to Big Diomede in the Soviet Union. Whoa. First person. I thought that was cold. I yeah. didn't either. Yikes. You would figure you'd freeze to death first, but okay. Um, birthdays. August 7th, 1560, Elizabeth Bathory. Ah! Episode 34. Our favorite. Yep. Mal- much maligned political figure but also maybe a monster nobody knows for sure make up your own mind listen to our episode um 1876 mata hari dutch dancer and spy oh shit um this is just a completely random one but uh happy birthday to robert Mueller. uh okay yeah happy birthday robert Mueller. <laughs> mm, maybe not been your best Says, year but well he yeah 
he's trying. It's yeah. He's doing whatever he can within his own power, and, yeah. and he's a man of honor, that's for sure. American soldier and lawyer, sixth director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, happy birthday, Michael Shannon. Oh. And also happy birthday, Charlize Theron. All right. Oh, Charlize. I she's love so her. She's so pretty. Yeah. She's my favorite. <laughs> but anyway, I was like, there's a lot of cool shit that happened. You had good ones. You had a lot of, like... Like, random... It wasn't just, like, war-based or... No, yeah. But they were and also female-centric, too, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Because, like, I have a really hard time finding those mm-hmm. because nobody thinks they're very important. And the only one of my actual events that was about a dude was the, the Philippe Petit one. Yeah. Good finds. Thanks. I like it. Thanks. I like it a lot. Thank you. Yeah. What are you excited about, Hannah? Um, I'm excited about uh, just like a couple random things. First, I get to go to my friend's baby shower this weekend, which is very exciting because, you know, she's just she's going to be the best mom. So I'm doing that in Colorado and that is making me happy. Um, And also, I've been listening to this podcast called The Shrink Next Door. What? Have you heard of this? No. It is bananas it's about it's it's uh i think it's written and narrated by a journalist for Mm. bloomberg Mm -hmm. and he basically came upon this story by accident he was invited to a party at one of his neighbor's houses in the hamptons like they both had summer homes in the hamptons and so he went to this party and met this guy who owns the house and the guy who owns the house is this therapist who is Um, well-loved by his clients. He's got this beautiful home and lots of pictures of him with celebrities. And the journalist left with a very specific impression of this person. And then the following summer came back and the therapist was gone. And the guy who he had assumed was the gardener is like kind of rampaging around throwing things away. And he's very frustrated and very mad. And, And so the journalist goes up to him and he's like, what's going on? And he starts to unravel this whole story about this therapist who basically um, conned one of his patients into, you know, giving him everything he had <laughs> and and sort of infiltrated his life in this really insane way. And so The Shrink Next Door is all about that infiltration what? and how, yeah, how he made it, how it was possible. And uh, that's so wild it's really crazy and it's very well researched and the the story itself the way that it sort of unfolds is so fascinating so the shrink next door is what i'm listening to and i really like it i'll have to look into that yeah yeah so that's what i'm excited about because i i'm super interested in those stories you know no that's awesome so yeah yeah man that's that cool and uh Otherwise, I think that concludes this week's episode. This week's episode. Hope you're all staying cool. Unless you're in Australia, I hope you're staying warm. Oh, there Boom. you go. Because I know we have some listeners in Tasmania. Damn straight. So they're on the other hemisphere. There you go. But, there you go. But I'm sweaty as all <laughs> get out. Well, we'll we'll sign off. Um, I do want to just remind everybody that we do have a Patreon that you can check out. We appreciate everybody who is a monthly contributor. Supporter. Helps us keep our website up. Oh, my God. Our hosting going. My favorite people. Yes, exactly. Um, so that's patreon.com slash GWBB podcast. You could also buy us a coffee on our Ko-Fi, K-O-F-I, if you don't want to 
do a recurring payment thing donation mm-hmm. you can do a one time yep we love those two yeah and um, otherwise we are on social media we're on everything GWBB everything. podcast man yes ma'am and uh, on that note we'll see you next week peace out witches goodbye for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. (laughs) Our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moonbounce. Moonbounce.